From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, the first ever Canadian guideline for treating high-risk drinking and alcohol use disorder, otherwise known as AUD, has been published. It's been published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and it was developed in partnership involving the Canadian Research Initiative on Substance Misuse and the BC Centre on Substance Use. These are guidelines that provide 15 evidence-based recommendations to help reduce the harms that are all associated with high-risk drinking and to support people as they seek treatment and recover. So what does this actually look like? Dr. Evan Wood is joining us now, co-chair of the Guideline Writing Committee and an addiction medicine specialist at UBC and the BCCSU. Dr. Evan Wood, thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. When we're talking about, so this is the the first time we've had a Canadian guideline when it comes to high-risk drinking, uh, treating it, and alcohol use disorder. What exactly does that mean? Well, you know, to be honest, when you say it like that, it's clearly a blind spot in terms of, you know, the institutions that should be, you know, creating mechanisms for Canadians who are really looking for help with alcohol use to have effective evidence-based recommendations in the same way that we would have, you know, recommendations if somebody is having chest pain or another medical condition. So um, this is sort of the ground floor to try and build out that healthcare system response for individuals that are, you know, really struggling with, um, with drinking too much. Is it challenging as well in that we seem to often get studies and for, from many different places, but often studies that contradict each other or will put the threshold of, I think, yes, we can all say the, the best amount to drink when it's we're talking about alcoholic beverages is none. But this, the studies and requirements that or sorry, recommendations, they tend to change a lot. Yeah, that's sort of a complementary guideline that I think you're alluding to, which was some recommendations around safe drinking levels. This, I think, could be viewed as sort of a sister guideline to that. And this is really for people who, you know, aren't having questions about, you know, their problems with alcohol and are really seeking help. And um, what this guideline essentially does is describe, you know, for family doctors, how to talk to patients with alcohol to make them feel comfortable to describe what they're going through. But there's actually certain medications that can be very, very effective to help people reduce their alcohol use or help people quit drinking if they want to quit drinking. And there's actually some very commonly prescribed medications that this guideline highlights actually probably increase craving and use of alcohol. So certain antidepressants, SSRI antidepressants like Prozac, um, it's been sort of underappreciated by physicians who prescribe these medications that um, when they actually were tried in double-blind placebo-controlled trials of people with alcohol use disorder in comparison to placebo, they caused people to drink a lot more in many cases. So um, the guidelines sort of saying, hey, do these things that work um, and don't do these things that actually, you know, if somebody's drinking too much, they get a little bit depressed, they go see their family doctor. If they're not careful, they might end up getting put on a medication that actually makes things worse. Hmm. And was that, I was looking at a story that kind of touched on a case where that was happening. So are you talking about the SSRI or the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor? Yeah, so there's that class of medications. And then some studies have shown that antipsychotic medications that commonly get prescribed to people to help with anxiety or sleep 
Um, uh, there's a medication called quetiapine that is really, uh, you know, sometimes looks like it's being prescribed like a health food supplement. It's so commonly prescribed. Uh, there's a medication called trazodone that's prescribed to help people sleep. And actually, in, in some double-blind placebo-controlled trials, when those medications were tried among people with alcohol use disorder, the opposite effect that one might desire was seen, and people ended up drinking more in many cases. So, yeah, it's sort of sort of arguing that we need better systems and supports for people who are drinking too much and sort of fleeting visits with physicians, just throwing prescriptions at them and saying, try this, try this, try this. That approach probably does not work and in some patients probably contributes to harm. And um, we really need to be reaching for those things that are effective, focusing our energy there and building the sort of system of care that's really required to help people when they're seeking help for too much alcohol um, to be able to find the, the tools and resources and supports that they need because we know that this is a very, very treatable illness, but um, we need to use effective interventions and avoid things that are ineffective or at worst harmful. And when you're talking about those uh, prescriptions then, so is it really oversimplifying it? Because I would think if somebody was going to, to try to get help for, say, anxiety or depression or for sleeping, wouldn't whoever it was that was going to give them a prescription or, or, or give them one of these drugs, wouldn't one of the questions be, well, how much alcohol are you consuming and making sure that, that you knew that, that what else the person was taking before giving them a, a prescription? Yeah, I think it's two things. One, we know that physicians are in a hurry, and so they don't routinely uh, ask those questions. We know that patients often feel ashamed about how much alcohol they're using or don't want to change so that they don't uh, divulge how much alcohol they're using. And then the third thing is, is that those medications were sort of tested in the sterile confines of the sort of perfect population where no one was using any alcohol. And so this side effect was really unknown. And most people that are prescribing these medications, even if they said, hey, yeah, I'm drinking too much, the family doctor might say, well, listen, I want you to cut down on your drinking and I'm also going to give you this medication which is going to help you sleep or is going to help with your low mood. And that prescriber just not knowing that you could actually really drive someone into drinking a lot more due to the side effect of the medication. Uh, so now that we know uh, there is that connection and that some of these medications might actually uh, make someone crave alcohol more or drink more, do you think there w will there be a change in the way that they're used? Well, that's the challenge. You know, these these guidelines are just a PDF on a website. We do need to undertake that process of educating prescribers, educating patients, building the system of care that's really necessary. And um, I often think of my cardiology colleagues and, you know, if they identified a patient was on a medication that could increase heart attacks, you know, they'd be jumping up and down and looking to change the system. And I think in mental health and substance use, there hasn't been that sort of inward looking thinking and really sort of trying to bring an evidence-based medicine perspective to the care of people that are struggling with things like alcohol use disorder and that this guideline is really a clarion call to let's really try and up our game in Canada in terms of helping people that are struggling with alcohol use with more effective treatment. Uh, because the numbers that were put out in, in by, by the BC Centre on substance use, uh, they seem pretty high given that, that the numbers at the top of, of the release put out say that uh, as far as Canadians, that more than 50% of people in Canada aged 15 or older currently drink more than the amount recommended and that's in Canada's guidance on alcohol and health. Does that not seem like a rather large number? 
Well, it is it is high, and it's 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 reflecting those earlier guidelines that you mentioned that really recommended you know no more than two drinks a week unless you're willing to put yourself at risk of of some of the consequences of alcohol use. But to be fair, the consequences of alcohol use are more concentrated among those who drink more than that, and there's sort of this dose response effect to where you know we know that. There's about 200 medical conditions that stem from excessive alcohol use. So those guidelines, I think, are intended to, uh, you know, advise Canadians. But for somebody that has, you know, three drinks a week and is, has it under, uh, you know, total control, I think there's an inconsequential difference between them and someone who has two drinks. And the guideline that we're talking about today is really for the person who, you know, is crushing 12 beers every night or a 26 or a vodka and, you know, just can't help themselves but go to the liquor store every day. And this guidelines really directed towards them and trying to help those individuals with their treatment goals in terms of cutting down or quitting alcohol use. And uh, Dr. Wood, just to kind of go back to something you said that that if we were talking about, you know, hypertension or hearts, uh, heart uh, disease or, or some other things, there might it, it gets a different kind of attention as opposed to substance use or alcohol use. Is that changing at all or, or how do we make it so so it is taken so people don't feel that there's stigma attached to talking about it and that we are looking at these numbers and, and treating it with, with the attention that it deserves? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you nailed it on the head, I think, in terms of stigma. I work at Vancouver Detox, which is Vancouver Coastal Health's big withdrawal management center. And in some ways, it's a metaphor for the addiction treatment system. And so far as it's in the city's old animal shelter, the dog pound. And, uh, you know, we routinely discharge patients seeking treatment from there to homeless shelters because there's nowhere for them to go. And of course, that ends up costing health and social systems more. So we need to build a functioning system of care for people struggling with alcohol or other drug use challenges. And we could save a lot of money by doing that. And uh, this guideline really just highlights the work that needs to be done in terms of the care of people with alcohol use disorder. Dr. Evan Wood, thank you so much as always for your time. Appreciate you making the time today. Thank you so much. Well, we started out the show talking about short-term rentals and the introduction of legislation that the Premier says will strike back at profit-driven mini-hotel operators. We've been hearing from you on the buzz line about that, and we'll continue to share your comments a little bit later on. But now we're going to talk about a different kind of housing and what is happening with some high-density housing that is supposed to be going forward in downtown Vancouver, looking at some downtown town high-rises and why the progress on those high-rises has effectively stalled. Dan Fumano, who writes and has pieces in the Vancouver Sun, has written a very interesting piece about this, taking a look at these projects and why developers in some cases are now asking City Hall to extend the deadlines when it comes to uh, some of the requirements with those projects. Well, joining me to talk a bit more about this and what is happening with these is Brad Jones, who is the Senior VP of development with West Group. Brad, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, the, the Dan Fumano piece, uh, the, the title, the headline of that is Vancouver Developers Seek Deadline Extensions on Major Downtown High-Rises. Uh, there's a lot of information in this piece, so I'm so glad that you were able to join us uh, to talk a bit more about this. Uh, from West Group and West Group's involvement in this, what is happening with the rezoning and with building these high-rises? Sure. Unfortunately, I think this is uh, an incredibly complicated and nuanced topic, so it's really hard to cover in a couple minutes, but let's do our best. So 
Um, we, at, for our site, we started this rezoning process in 2018. So we're over five years into the rezoning process with the city and we've yet to get our rezoning finalized. So we've been at this for quite a while. Um, and, and these types of projects enter into what the city calls a negotiated CAC. So it's, it's where our team and the city's team sit in a room and you negotiate how much value is being created by the project and the city negotiates to take between 75 and 85% of that value from the developer in exchange for granting that zoning. And then they use that to pay for, you know, parks and amenities and community centers and things like that. Uh, but what the city started doing in really good times in the market is they started introducing these timelines on projects where if you didn't move ahead with your project by a certain date, they would want to renegotiate the deal to make sure you're not getting too far ahead. Um, and so what's happening is some of these projects, they haven't got their approvals yet, but these deadlines are coming up. And obviously it's a challenging time in the housing market, uh, particularly the, the luxury end of the market. Um, so what we're seeing is interest costs since these negotiations took place have doubled, construction costs are up 20 to 30%. Um, and then one of the biggest increases is actually city fees and charges, uh, both city, regional, provincial, and federal. Um, you know, Metro Vancouver recently announced um, that they're going to be creating uh, new fee categories, which would add up to $18,000 per new home in this project. So the economics of these projects is really challenged right now. And so when we hear about uh, the development companies asking for a deadline, which uh, or a 24 month or, or a deadline for the projects, what does that actually mean? So what that means is, is we're asking to... Um, extend the time where we need to pay that fee. And to be clear, the projects haven't even broken ground yet. And so the, the things that the city's trying to pay for through these amenity funds are things that are created by the residents that move in. So just because we're under construction doesn't mean we're creating demand for you know a swimming pool, let's say. Uh, so what we're trying to do is delay the time we need to finalize that rezoning with them. Uh, and, and it requires when that rezoning's finalized that we pay the CAC. But just because we finalize the rezoning, we still need to get a development permit from the city, which takes, you know, one to two years, and then building permits from the city and sell the project and build it. So many of these projects, this one in particular, by the time we're done, would have a nine to 10 year life, at least, um, from the time we started working with the city to completion. Which seems like a long time when you, when you look at it and when we talk so much about the need for more housing and for projects like this to go forward. And I know the president of your company was quoted, he was in uh, Dan Fimano's article saying the project, this project could have already been started, that could, the construction could have already gotten underway if it wasn't for, for this slow process. Absolutely. So we spent two years with the city negotiating this fee payment because they're looking to maximize it and get as much out of the project as they can. And we're trying to have a project that's viable for us, but not just for us. We need to get in a project like this, we need to have multiple banks finance it. And so we need to be able to hit their thresholds as well. So in this environment where um, interest costs have doubled and construction costs are up um, and, you know, fees and charges from government across the board are now 30% of the price of a new home in Vancouver, the projects don't work anymore. And so I think we're at a point in the housing market where, you know, governments locally for years have been generating a significant amount of revenue out of new housing, 
it's not working anymore in a down market and we need to decide if our priority is getting the new housing that we so badly need or getting the, the money from new housing approvals. Right. And when we're talking about that money, those contributions then, uh, like you mentioned, uh, and in these cases, we're talking about millions of dollars that would be used on those amenities for, for parks, uh, for, for other, uh, other amenities in the, in the downtown core. So does that mean that that money, too, is, is kind of tied up in this slow process? It is. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the city actually gets their money early in these cases. So, so for many of these fees, the city gets it at approval of the project. The developer has to pay that up front, and then you then and only then do you get to launch your sales and try to make a go of the project. Hopefully, you're successful, and then you need to go through the process and build it. Right, and and so when we talk about again uh, talking about potentially uh, extending the deadline, uh, the the deadline extension requests from from the developers, uh, West Group being one of them behind these three projects, uh, th- there's a difference, I think, in what the the timeline or what council is looking at. That it could be six months, it could be a year, it could be 24 months. How much though, when we talk about where interest rates are and we talk about where the market is, by getting that deadline, how do you know things are going to be more viable or it's going to be a better situation, say, a year, year and a half down the road? I'm glad you had that, asked that question because we don't. And this is the, the challenge in this environment where nobody can predict the market and you can't time the market. And, and so by putting these deadlines to do these things, it makes it next to impossible for the development community to actually get everything ready to build the housing at the right time. Because if we sometimes, you know, you have a really good market for six or eight months of the year, and then it will slow down. And and the way that our pre-sale requirements work, we need to make, you know, the majority of our pre-sales to get financing within a 12-month window. So the confluence of all of the policies from all the levels of government have created this environment where I would say new housing in Canada is one of the most regulated markets that exists. It's taxed at a higher rate than, you know, cigarettes and alcohol, which we try to get people not to use by taxing them high. And I, I think something the general public doesn't totally understand is that a new, you know, a new two-bedroom condo in Vancouver would pay right now probably three hundred and fifty thousand dollars of its purchase price is just paying for uh, fees and charges from the various levels of government. Which is a, a, a well, depending on the price of it, that's a, well, in any kind of price range, that's a big amount of money. It's about a third. Huh. And so at, at this point then, um, because I, I had also seen a, a quote from the West Group president that, that this project might not be viable if things, if things don't change or, or if they're, they, they, that you don't get the, the uh, deadline extension. What happens in that scenario? Yeah, so, so in this scenario, we own, we own the site and there's an existing rental building on the site that we would be replacing as a result of this project. So we would continue to just operate that rental building and the city's policy in this case, if this deal expires, is they can say, you have to go start your rezoning again. And so we would start the process over from the beginning and we would submit the same application and then we would go through and we would renegotiate that, that density payment that we just spent two years negotiating. Um, but the interesting thing right now is the city would be worse off for that. They would get less money out of that n- negotiation because the market's down, interest costs are way up, and government fees and charges have gone up. And so, so those no- negotiations are effectively an open book look at the financials of the project to determine how much the project can afford to pay to the city. 
and right now doing that process, the city would get less out of that. Right. And if, and like you said, you own the, the property and you own that site. Uh, so then would it be waiting to, to see when the market is in, in a more favorable position? And, and I mean, I guess the people living there now would be okay with that because that means their lives aren't disruptive, disrupted, but it also doesn't really do much for getting new and more units in, into the housing market. Exactly. And that's what we're trying to convey is just let these projects stay in the system. Um, and don't prevent them from getting to the market when the timing's right. The the introduction of these deadlines to move forward, it, it's a new thing, and it's it's rare. Only in a certain in in a few projects that have these complicated CAC negotiations. And I think it's a dangerous thing to be doing if our goal is to create housing, because you're putting just another constraint on a really challenging market. Um, and so, like you mentioned, Jill. You know, we have these tight timeframes to move ahead in an approvals process that has taken five years. And it's not like we're in control of that approvals process necessarily, right? We're getting permits and, and reviews done by, you know, I think there's, you know, there's over 20 individual departments in the city that look at these projects in addition to things if they need to go to the provincial government for review, um, you know, pieces go to Metro Vancouver for their fee reviews. So timing the market perfectly in these six-month windows is a crystal ball that none of us have. So does it all depend then on what council decides uh, when I think this is coming back to them tomorrow, what they decide on whether or not to grant or how long of a deadline extension to grant? It does, yeah. So the options that are put in front of them are a six-month extension. Um, The second option um, is a six-month extension after which they start charging interest, which in that case puts the financials of the project in an even worse scenario. And, And it's a bizarre thing to charge interest on because it's not like the residents are there creating a demand for new amenities yet. Um, so in that case, we would we would likely just start the process over and renegotiate that fee from the beginning with the city because it just would be so unviable for us. Well, we will uh, wait and see what happens when this comes back to council. Brad, thank you so much. Like you said, there's a lot of moving parts with this, but thank you so much for joining the show and talking more about it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. We are going to have more on that legislation. Uh, The comments I played for you before the newscast from Mike Farnworth will be getting some reaction to that coming up right after the 2.30 news this afternoon. Right now, though, we are taking a look at something that could potentially be happening in the city of Port Moody, pay parking. Where and when might this happen? Well, joining me to talk more about this is Kyla Knowles, a city councillor in Port Moody. Councillor, thank you so much for taking the time. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, I know this is something Port Moody has looked at in the past, I think around 2003, and certainly it's been discussed before. But when we're talking about those busy areas, Rocky Point Park and and some other areas that people will, will be very familiar with, what specifically is in the motion that you've brought forward or that you are bringing forward to council? Right. So you're right. We're mostly considering Rocky Point Park um, and Murray Street. If you're familiar with Port Moody at all, um, we've got what is, you know, colloquially referred to as Brewery Row, which lines Murray Street. And it's very popular for a lot of regional guests. 
um, as, law, as well as residents. And then we have businesses that are all parked along there as well. And a lot of their employees um, park all, all in those spaces that are free for use during the day. So those, those are, the, I think, the primary concern. But, um, you know, staff has raised the idea that we may also want to consider Old Orchard Park, Unglass Way near Eagle Ridge Hospital. Um, so I guess we'll see what happens. And what do you think the benefits would be then of bringing in pay parking to these areas? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so, um, well, first of all, I, I should mention that, you know, most other cities in Metro Vancouver, as well as our regional parks and beaches, have already instituted pay parking based on best management practices. So we would actually be catching up to our municipal neighbours in that respect. Um, I, I've got, I would say, five main uh, main reasons why this is actually good. And actually, I think it would improve the resident experience and visitors, to be honest with you. Um, obviously, with traffic and climate change uh, worsening throughout the region, um, reducing traffic is one major uh, benefit. You know, when you implement paid parking in busy areas, you encourage the use of transit and other modes of transportation. And we know that raising the price of parking reduces demand as habitual users, you know, begin to seek alternate modes of transport. Um, we would be encouraging turnover uh, to support our residents, visitors, and other businesses. You know, like this is vital for Rocky Point. Um, we've got the breweries, we've got fish and chips, we've got a bunch of businesses there. Uh, we're left dealing, with, you know, like a parade of vehicles circling the parking lot, driving up and down the street searching for parking. Um, so with with free parking, turnover suffers, and you know our businesses aren't getting enough customers because visitors are, are discouraged from even even trying. And then, um, if you're again, if you're familiar with Port Moody, we've got a West Coast Express parking lot just across an overpass. It's about a five-minute walk from the breweries, um, and there they charge three dollars a day, which is such a deal. And yet, uh, in Port Moody, just you know, the three-minute walk over to Murray Street, it's free. So you find the West Coast Express parking lot empty most of the time because people, people if people don't have to pay, they're not going to pay, right? Right. Um, and then, yeah, I guess lastly, it's, you know, it's progressive social policy. Costs to the cities of parking are recuperated through taxation. Costs to developers for parking are recuperated through higher unit prices and rents. And costs to businesses are recuperated through higher prices and lower wages for employees. So I, I think this, although it's, it might be painful for some, um, I really do think that this will en- enhance the, the experience for everybody. Uh, when you say, though, it could be painful for some, does, does it not make it so something that maybe was affordable when we're dealing with uh, at a time with inflation and with the, the high cost of just about everything? Does this not add more costs to just about anybody if you are coming down to that area and uh, you're driving to that area? It, it Well, of course it does. But what we're trying to do here, like this is about traffic management. You know, we're not, this isn't necessarily going to be a big revenue generator, if at all. It'll actually probably be revenue neutral. Um, but again, you know, we have so many complaints about traffic. And yet, you know, the saying, I am traffic and traffic is me. If you're the one complaining about traffic, it's because you are traffic. Um, so the idea is, first of all, we would have accessible spots remain for people with accessibility issues. Um, that That wouldn't change. But at the end of the day, um, we're dealing with unprecedented growth in this in this province and in this region. Um, something like thirty thousand people per month are being added to our region. So, how do we manage the traffic and make the experience more comfortable for everybody? 
Uh, and when you talk about more turnover and uh, try, so trying to avoid having people just park in the parking lots and take up those spots for, for mm-hmm. great periods of time, uh, could you not do that, though? You don't need to charge to, to have more turnover. You can have free parking, but a limit of two hours or three hours and, and enforce that way, couldn't you? Uh, we could have that, that, and that has been considered in the past. It was discarded by previous councils as um, as not considered, uh, I guess, enough deterrence for people parking and just moving their cars around. So, for example, employees, that, the employees that I mentioned that kind of park there all day, they just, you know, leave every two or three hours and then just move their car. So it's not actually contributing to real turnover. Okay. Uh, you mentioned as well one of the, the sites and, and one of the other sites being considered near Eagle Ridge Hospital. Uh, certainly in other jurisdictions where the, it's pay parking at hospitals, there have been concerns raised and people questioning uh, whether or not uh, that's a great policy. Are you concerned at all that people are going to look at that and think, well, why are you taking advantage of people who are at hospital, who are maybe visiting people in the hospital and making them pay for parking now? Absolutely. And I have concerns about that location as well. And to be honest with you, a lot of the people that park on Unglis Way near the hospital, those are the employees that work there. Because my, from my understanding is that they've got very little uh, employee parking and patient parking. So that is something that I would love for the provincial government to deal with. That's their jurisdiction. We've also been asking uh, the province to generally, there's a lot of unused land on that Eagle Ridge Hospital spot. Um, you know, there's a lot of suggestions for what they can do with that land. And I think it's about high time they started um, managing the demand. So you want the provincial government then to, to step in or to provide or for the hospital to provide employee parking? Uh, I want the province to step in to provide uh, additional parking for patients, for employees and for additional services on that site. I, that that uh, lot is generally incredibly underused at a time when we're, we're facing unprecedented pressures on our medical care system. And, and going back to uh, kind of the other, the, the, the very popular spots, uh, Rocky Point Park, again, like you mentioned, Brewery Row and such, have you talked to businesses or heard from businesses as far as their thoughts on this, whether or not they would be in favor of switching it to pay parking? So um, for the most part, I have talked to several, actually. My mechanic is, is located on Murray, and I, I am personally a visitor to the breweries. I love them. Um, a lot of the brewery employees um, have their own small parking lots, so somewhere, anywhere between, I would say, 7 and 12 spots per brewery. So the employees, um, they park there themselves, and so they're not particularly uh, fussed with trying to find a spot kind of at Rocky Point Park. I do know, I can tell you, though, that um, businesses that have been opposed to this in the past, as you know, as I mentioned, our businesses are facing, you know, extreme challenges with inflation and interest rates, as you mentioned. And for them, it's, it's tough just to just to pay the rent, right, and to pay their employees. So anything that's going to encourage turnover and um, bring in more customers, they've told me that they're for it. There, that they are for it. Okay. Um, yeah. Just one other thing. You mentioned that it would likely be revenue neutral. And it seems like a big shift to, to bring in a whole pay parking system that would that would go ahead. I think that that the, the Finance Committee at Council has talked a little bit about this as well. Would it actually be revenue neutral, though? Or would there not be some incentive in that this could be a way for the city to, to get some revenues to make some money off of this? Well, ideally, that would definitely be the case. Um, we are definitely looking for ways to increase our revenues to the city. Um, however, anytime you institute a paid parking system, the first couple of years, because there are implementation costs, administration costs, research costs, 
Um, so any sort of income over the first few years is going to be minimal. There is the potential for that to increase and uh, actually provide some revenues that we could then direct towards infrastructure. That would be great. But I don't think it's it's something that we should count on in the near term. And I really don't think that's the primary purpose behind this. This is about traffic management and, and improving the experience in our city for visitors, businesses, and residents. Uh, any idea on what the fees might look like if they were to go ahead? Uh, well, my personal, uh, my personal uh, preference would be that, you know, the West Coast um, Express station that I mentioned, that's $3 a day. Um, which is which is great for an entire day to spend at the park and at the breweries. So anything, I think it needs to be definitely more than that. I, I, and I don't want this to be particularly onus for people because, you know, our, our parks are some of the last few places um, that we can go and get exercise and fresh air and enjoy nature. So um, I, I think... You know, I, I think it needs to be, it needs to make sense based on the location, uh, based on the time spent. So, for example, if we if we look at um, the busiest times, you know, those would be, we could look at different prices for, for, for different times. We tweak parking costs based on location, time of day, and congestion so that residents aren't penalized with parking fees during low traffic periods. All right. And any idea, so this is coming to, a report coming to council tomorrow. Any idea when there might be a decision on this? Well, my hope is that we um, we come to a, a a motion that is voted on by majority of council um, to at least perhaps a trial in one or more of the locations that we've been looking at. I think at the very least it, sh- it needs to be something that we try and and then you know we we again engage with our visitor with our businesses and our visitors and ask them how the experience is going and then we take it from there. All right. Well, Councillor Knowles, thank you. Appreciate you making the time for us today. Thank you. You bet. Thanks so much, Joe. As uh, you've been hearing on the news and as I uh, played earlier for you, uh, the uh, just a little bit of the Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth introducing the legislation that will change the Police Act in B.C. This bill amends the Police Act to clarify the process any municipality must follow when they wish to change their police of jurisdiction. It will ensure that the process has transparency and ensures that municipalities, police organizations, and the minister have clear responsibilities to follow in any transition. These amendments include a requirement for transition to proceed to completion once approved, and the requirement for entities involved in a transition to provide information to the minister when requested. These amendments support the Solicitor General's statutory duty to ensure the maintenance of adequate and effective policing in the province by addressing a lack of clarity in the legislation. Finally, Honourable Speaker, the legislation also contains provisions that provide clarity and finality to the people of Surrey regarding their ongoing transition. Amendments to the Act will specify that the City of Surrey must provide policing services through a municipal police department. It also provides the authority for the Solicitor General to cancel the existing agreement between the province and the City of Surrey for the provision of RCMP services. This legislation also provides government the ability, if necessary, to appoint an administrator to assume the functions of the Surrey Police Board to oversee the Surrey Police Service. All right, that was from Mike Farnworth earlier today, introducing that legislation. Well, let's bring on Rob Gordon, a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University, to talk a little bit more about this. Rob, thank you so much, as always, for coming on the show. 
Not a problem, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, this seems like it's pretty far-reaching legislation, but what are your thoughts uh, on what you've heard from the public safety minister? Uh, well, I, I think at long last he's making some fairly firm statements and introducing appropriate legislation uh, to settle this sorry issue. But it's also foreshadowing some other changes that may come down the pipe fairly soon, uh, at least probably next year, with respect to uh, the, the organization and administration of policing services in BC generally. And I'm referring to to the most excellent recommendations that are set out in the all-party committee report uh, on the need to amend the Police Act. So this is foreshadowing some of that stuff, but it, in the short term, it most certainly is an excellent way of uh, dealing with the Surrey uh, debacle. Right. So dealing with Surrey, and uh, even if some might consider this a bit heavy-handed, dealing with Surrey and then also kind of paving the way, uh, like you're saying, so if we're going to regional policing or if other cities or municipalities are also considering going that route? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Um, so they're thinking ahead, looking ahead, um, at the same time, as they're dealing with, uh, with what's gone on in Surrey. Uh, I don't think it's heavy-handed. I think w- what they're doing is, uh, and of course, you know, that'll be open to dispute, but uh, what they're doing is, uh, as they profess, to clarify the situation with respect to who actually is uh, responsible for the delivery of police services in the province. It is the Solicitor General. Uh, and this makes it abundantly clear that that is the case. So that should settle some issues. But of course, what's going to happen next is that um, Surrey, the city of Surrey had always said they're going to take this one to court. Well, good luck with that. They'll go for a judicial review. I'm sure Peter German has uh, boned up on, on the relevant municipal and administrative law issues. And uh, he will probably... Uh, want to proceed uh, as quickly as possible. But it's going to be a slow process, and I don't see that uh, anything at this point uh, that, that the uh, city of Surrey can do, even by way of judicial review. Uh, judicial reviews are very useful, but I don't see any problems with uh, exactly what the, uh, what the province has done here. They've merely asserted uh, their existing power under the Police Act and responsibility under the Police Act to provide proper and adequate uh, services, police services across the province. Surrey is just one component of that. Right. Okay. Uh, because one of the lines in the, the in the release when they talk about the legislation and uh, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth said these changes address a lack of clarity in the Police Act that was exposed during the police transition in the city of Surrey. Uh, could the argument be made, though, that 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 uh, this this isn't retroactive and that city the city of Surrey is asking for this judicial review and, and making the arguments based on the old Police Act that didn't have that clarity? Well, they, they could. I mean, we could get into some entangled uh, legal issues here, but I think uh, what they are doing is simply saying, look, the Police Act um, had these provisions in it. Uh, it wasn't clear where the responsibilities uh, lay. 
I, I disagree with that uh, assertion, by the way. I think the Police Act is relatively clear in terms of who's responsible for what. Um, but it's going to be um, something that will end up in court, uh, as, again, I predicted. Um, so it's um, un- unlikely to be um, something that will drag on for very much longer. He said, hopefully. <laughs> Which, I, I, yeah, we've said that a few times, haven't we, When with the different things that have yeah. had, the different developments along this road. Uh, which uh, makes my next question, I, I suppose, maybe impossible to answer. But is this the end of the back and forth? Is this the definitive move? Uh, no, but each one of these cuts, I think, um, I think the, the, the argument against, the province intervening uh, gets weaker uh, and this uh, I think will help settle certain aspects of it to the point where the, where hopefully the municipality and the mayor um, come to their senses and decide that really enough is enough it's now time to move on and I hope that that's what happens uh, the, the uh, minister also uh, also said that this also provides the, the BC government the ability to uh, appoint an administrator to assume the functions of the Surrey Police Board as well as to manage the Surrey Police Service. How is, uh, is, is that kind of exceptional circumstances that they could actually uh, go the route of appointing, uh, appointing their own administrator to do that? Uh, it would be unusual, but is obviously uh, thinking ahead and blocking uh, certain avenues that could be, or certain tactic, tactics that could be used by the, by the mayor of Surrey uh, to try to further subvert what it is that the province wants to have happen, um, and that I think uh, is the sensible way to go. So, I, a good good for Farmer, um, and good for the NDP government uh, resolving this, uh, but it, it, you know, it'll keep going. Uh, it's too hot a pot not to uh, not to keep boiling for a while, but eventually it will die down. That is very very true, uh, Rob. One other question, and this I think goes to something you mentioned right off the top about making this better in the future, and that that also says that the amendment amendments will assure that once a transition plan is approved by the minister, the municipality has a legal obligation to complete the transition. So, does that take it out of? of councils, of, of civic elections happening and a different council with a different vision, it no longer matters that if that plan has been approved, it must be, it must be adopted? Good question. Um, I, I think we'd have to see the actual wording of the amendments for the Police Act first. But at first blush, I think it does lift it all above the, uh, the lift it all above the, petty politics and municipalities. And let me, let me just say this, that if nothing else we learn from, yet again, we learn from this experience that politics and policing do not mix. They were never intended to mix. And the mixing of them, I think, is a shameful activity. So from the point of view of policing, uh, this has nothing, what's happened has nothing to do with providing effective police services to a community and everything to do with petty municipal politics. It's really quite shameful, and I'm glad they're moving to settle it now. 
All right. Well, like you said, we'll have to see what happens next. And we are expecting to hear from uh, Surrey's mayor uh, in a short time, in about 15 minutes from now. Uh, Rob Gordon, thank you so much for joining us today and for uh, your take on this. Always appreciate it. Okay. I'm sure the mayor is going to be an interesting person to listen to this morning, this afternoon. Uh, I certainly will be tuned in. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.